just kind of nodded at me and said, last day school, mommy. And that was the last time I ever saw him. The front desk told us that we couldn't visit him. He's a ward of the state. Hi, I'm Jay Ruderman, host of All About Change, a podcast showcasing individuals who leverage the hardships they faced to better the lives of others. I always had a place to escape, but this was something that was unraveling in front of 23,000 people. Listen to All About Change for a dose of hope and inspiration. Even when there's no truth in people's conclusions, there's always truth in their story. Right. You will find places of connection. You will find common ground. You will relate. They will feel heard. They will become more intellectually humble. We can make progress. The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time. At the Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. Listen, at the Village Square, we make pigs fly. Welcome to Village Squarecast. This is Vanessa Rouse. Thanks for joining us for I Never Thought of It That Way with Monica Guzman. Funding for this program was provided through a grant from Florida Humanities with funds from the National Endowment for the Humanities. This program is facilitated by Manu Meal. I'll introduce you to Manu and then he'll introduce you to Monica. Manu Meal is CEO of Bridge USA and a social entrepreneur who's passionate about empowering young people. Manu was inspired to start what is now Bridge USA when he was a freshman and witnessed the protests on the campus of UCAL Berkeley over a planned visit by right-wing provocateur Milo Yiannopoulos. Bridge USA is an organization that aims to promote democracy, not partisanship. And they now have 43 campus chapters in 19 states. Manu was recently named to Forbes 30 Under 30 in Education. You're in great hands with Manu Meal, so time to turn it over to him for a proper introduction to Monica Guzman. Manu, take it away. Thank you so much. And so with that, I want to introduce our guest. So this is going to be the first and only time that I look down and read because our guest, Monica Guzman, has such an exemplary and amazing biography, and I want to make sure that we get every part of it. And then we're going to get into uh, conversation. So with that, I want to introduce Monica Guzman, who's a senior fellow for public practice at Braver Angels, the nation's largest cross-partisan grassroots organization working to depolarize America, and an amazingly close partner to Bridge USA. Uh, she's also the founder and CEO of Reclaim Curiosity and co-founder of the award-winning Seattle newsletter, The Evergrey. She was a 2019 fellow at the Henry M. Jackson Foundation and a 2016 fellow at the Neiman Foundation for Journalism at Harvard University. She was named one of the 50 most influential women in Seattle and served twice as a juror for the Pulitzer Prizes, a prize that I would very much like to put my name in the running for. Um, A Mexican immigrant, Latina, and dual U.S.-Mexico citizen, she lives in Seattle with her husband and two kids and is the proud liberal daughter of conservative parents. And with that, let me welcome on my amazing friend uh, and dear uh, co-conspirator in this work and leader, Monica Guzman. Here we are. There we are. Hi, Manu. How's it going? Hi, everyone. That, hey, Monica. That's that's quite the biography. 
I, I'm I, I'm I'm super grateful to see you and be here with you. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Yeah, really, really excited for this conversation. It's been it's been quite the roller coaster and really encouraging to see more and more people lean into exactly this topic. So with that, what I want to quickly do is just outline the structure of the program, and then uh, we're going to get right into some questions. And most importantly, uh, to the audience, this conversation is for you and it's for us. It's really to understand this topic. And so the way that we're going to split this up is we're going to talk for about 55 minutes. Um, the first 30 minutes, I'm going to really focus on uh, Monica's book. Um, and the second sort of 30 minutes of that, I'm going to focus much more on some of those hard personal questions like why is this work so difficult why is it is it hard to scale up and, and get to some of those and then at the end for the last 25 minutes the audience is welcome to uh, you know submit any questions so please as you're listening to this if there's anything that i say that monica says anything that perks your curiosity um which which also happens to be a major focal point of monica's book please feel free to drop your questions so with that 30 minutes of conversation on the book, 30 minutes about each other, and then uh, 25 minutes of questions. I want to get right into it, Monica. Why write this book at this moment in our in our in our in our politics and our democracy? Well, I think we all, I think a lot of people relate to the problem. The polarization that's around us, it's political polarization, but it's personal. It's in our workplace, it's in our communities, it's in our families. It's the reason that many people are breaking relationships. They don't know what else to do. It's the reason to feel pretty desperate for a lot of people about the state of things in our country. It's affecting so much uh, these, these ways that we think about how we communicate and what we're missing. For me, there were two threads that brought me to the book. The first is professional. I've been a journalist my whole career. And I'm a journalist because I take very seriously this idea that I want to help people understand each other. So I thought, okay, I'll write stories in, in the craft known as journalism. I'll do it as responsibly as I possibly can. And hopefully I'll put out some information that helps communities understand themselves and make better decisions. Cool. Hmm. But sometime in the last five to 10 years, that model kind of broke for me because I realized, wait a minute, just telling stories into this media landscape, into this fractured society, it, I mean, the, the, the pieces, the, there's, they're all shattered on the ground and they don't talk to each other. So how is this helping us understand each other? It's not, it's not enough. So I knew I had to duck out of that somehow and work on the underlying problem. And the second quick thread that I'll mention is the personal one, which is that this whole time <laughs> I've also been, as I say in my bio, and it's always uh, interesting to see the reaction when I'm in person, some people kind of give sort of nervous chuckles at the line, the proud liberal daughter of conservative parents. Uh, but it's very intentionally said, and I mean every word. We have had just incredible fights and arguments over the years because they are Republican conservative. I'm liberal Democrat. You know, we voted, they voted for Trump twice. I voted for the Democrat candidates mm -hmm. and my goodness. But somehow, despite all the heat, we have been able to have the kinds of conversations that help us understand each other. And the contrast, right, with 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 what's going on, how it feels hopeless and, and helpless uh, makes me want to say, hang on, I, I think there are ways through this and they're mm -hmm. easier than we think. So let me take some time and put this down. And and I promise I want to get deeper into the book, but I have to ask you first that the audience can familiarize themselves with that personal part of the story that you identified. Mm -hmm. um, where did you grow up? Where did your uh, parents raise you? What, what's a little bit of your personal background? Because I think that sometimes helps the audience relate. Yeah, so I was born in Monterrey, uh, Mexico, 
And um, I'm a dual, you know, U.S. Mexico citizen now. Uh, but when I was in what, like kindergarten, we moved to the States and soon after that went to New Hampshire. So I grew up mostly in New Hampshire. In the year 2000, that's when my parents finally got their citizenship uh, for the United States, which they were super excited about. There's this photograph I love of my mom's uh, naturalization ceremony, and she's holding a little flag, you know, a little American flag, and she's got red, white, and blue, and she's just beaming. And I'm 17, and I'm, you know, just hanging onto her shoulder. Um, and so we 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 picked this country. You know, this was a this was a selection kind of thing. And we also had the really interesting experience of voting kind of at the same time, right? Because I was just going to turn 18 and they were just starting to vote because they just became citizens. And so we sort of became political creatures all at once uh, across these two generations. And that was quite the experience. And I bet going from, uh, you know, uh, Monterey, Mexico to New Hampshire must have been quite the adaptation and it probably required a curious temperament so with that I, I want to get into the book a little bit and um it, but is there by any chance you have a copy of the book monica i'm traveling and so i don't have the direct copy yeah hang on yeah i may yeah. need I to want, do this for a I, quick second that's fine and and okay. and everyone you keep going keep going and for everyone that knows this this is the behind the scenes of what it's like to do a book placement so monica let's see that book really quickly i want to make okay. sure you see it here it is so I never thought of it that way. You know, that statement in and of itself requires a degree of curiosity. Yeah. Why do you think curiosity, that specific skill, out of all the different skills that we can be advocating for and putting in the forefront of our minds, why curiosity? Yeah, uh, several reasons. I and mean, mostly it is so swift mm -hmm. and effective and natural and universal. It is a cognitive unlocking of something. Um, mm -hmm. It is. It's how we reach for the key and open a door. Uh, people call it the knowledge emotion, which I love because it is a kind of emotion. It's often accompanied by anxiety if you have what's called um, deprivation-based curiosity, where it's like, I got to know when when is the vaccine going to be available? When are they going to lift the mask mandates? It's an itch you can't scratch. And so you check your favorite news source over and over again for new information. Or you might have interest-based curiosity, which is more adventurous. And that one's like somebody told you some random fact, and two hours later, you're still on the internet discovering more about it. So the a, a very perceptive question, I think, is the most powerful way to cross any divide mm -hmm. in an instant, right? A perceptive question uh, in the right context, in a conversation where you are connected and there's trust and goodwill. You can learn so much that you, outside of the context of the conversation, would have been unimaginable. So it's it's about that. Curiosity is activated when we pay attention to the gap between what we know and what we don't know. And depending on how motivated we are, we, we could do a lot to fill in that gap for ourselves. And this is how we learn. And as long as we hold that door open, as long as we don't tell ourselves that we are already certain that we don't need to know anymore, those questions could keep coming and keep our minds open and keep us humble. And, and uh, you mentioned perceptive questions, and it's something that you touch upon in your book. How does one what is a perceptive question and and how do how do we come up with those perceptive questions in sort of different social circumstances so that we can you know bridge that gap and get somewhere deeper yeah so perceptive question means you are perceiving the other person you are listening deeply you are you are paying attention to them on various levels so mm -hmm. it's what they say but it's also how they're saying it it's also do they seem comfortable? It's are is the volume turning up? Is that giving you some sense that 
what they're talking about has a lot of deep meaning to them? Are they repeating themselves over and over again? Are they bringing something up almost as a cue, a, a hint to drop, a little crumb that they want you to ask about, right? There's all these ways that we communicate with each other uh, that are pretty e extraordinary. Um, and so, yeah, a perceptive question is one that is also looking to be curious about the person who's holding the idea, not just the idea. Uh, a lot of us think about disagreement and, and sort of the boundaries of that are the boundaries of the topic we're talking about. But this really blows wide open. The discovery of it blows wide open when we're curious about each other with each other. And the boundaries of the conversation extend far beyond, let's talk about immigration, let's talk about abortion. No, let's talk about you. Let's talk yeah. about me. Let's talk about the meaning we bring to these issues. That's what's going to make it human and powerful and able to get past a lot of the barriers that we put up. And you mentioned this a little bit before about the personal, that being one of those threads. And it's evident as you read your book that your relationship with your parents was pretty essential in how you think about some of this. If you were to ground this in 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 some tangible notions that a lot of us could also relate to in our families, like what were some of those challenges that you experienced, for example, with your parents? How did you overcome some of those challenges? And what lessons can you take from you overcoming those challenges to apply to, let's say, upcoming Thanksgiving dinners? Uh, how do you, how do you, how would you describe that process? Well, everybody's relationship is very different. So that is worth saying, because a lot of these strategies, they don't map on neatly to so many different contexts. And, and that's really important. Everybody's relationship truly, truly is different. It's so much about how much trust is there. Mm -hmm. um, among the challenges, uh, I remember one in particular that really hurt <laughs> was sitting down with my mom um, ahead of the 2020 election and you know, me getting kind of excited because I can tell like, oh, we're about to go at it on something political. I forget what the topic was. We're like, here we go. Here we go. Right. And I'm getting ready. I'm getting like my rhetorical skills. Here we go. And then I see my mom and she's sitting on the other side of the table and she goes. And we haven't even started talking yet. And so I'm like, mom, what? What's going on? And she goes, I why bother, Monica? Like, mm -hmm. you're the journalist. You're the communicator. You know, you're you're good at this. I. I don't know that I feel up to it today. And that made me so sad because I realized just because I might be a more experienced communicator doesn't make me any more eligible or or my view any more important or valid than my mother's, right? Um, I mean, we both have English as a second language, but I grew up sort of more educated in English than she did and and whatnot. So that just hurt me because I thought, man, that that is a barrier, isn't it? So I've thought about that, how, how we can make sure that we are not engaging in asymmetrical warfare. Mm -hmm. I think people do this too when they come in with like all their articles, you know, like uh -huh. memorized statistics. Here we go. And it's like machine gun fire at the other side. I've got all my statistics ready. <laughs> yeah. and I'm ready to go. <laughs> you know, and if the other person didn't show up thinking we had to do homework, what you're having is a conversation that maybe they didn't consent to. Yep. And so there's this sort of unevenness in that. And then whoever feels like they're winning, it's not real. It's not genuine. You're not actually going for the meaning that both people bring. Um, you're sort of playing like a who gets an A yeah. in this topic. And that's not that doesn't that's not inclusive. That doesn't yeah. welcome all perspectives. It doesn't welcome all people with all kinds of skills, whether they're good communicators or not. Who cares? They're bringing meaning. So let's make sure that it can all be welcome. That's just one example. 
Yeah. Um, really quickly, because we live in such a politically charged time, could you define the word inclusive and, and what that means to Ooh. you? Ooh. I told you, I totally, I, we, go, we go off script. <laughs> this is great. I've never been asked this and I'm so thrilled. Okay, I get to make this up uh, as I go along. For me, for me, inclusive means every human being is able to express what's in their heart, is able to put their meaning into a pool of shared meaning. And so that's about different races and that's about different genders and that's about different sexualities and it's about different viewpoints too. If, if we put on, if we took our opinions and put them on and off like a hat, hmm. then maybe that wouldn't be part of inclusion to me. But that's not how opinions work, even though we often treat them that way on social media. Like, I can talk somebody out of their opinion with a meme. Watch. You know, like, nope, that's not a thing, people. Um, opinions are, they have these deep, 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 deep roots that we don't see, especially online, you know, where we're not even, it's a non-place that makes us into non-people. But they do, they have these deep roots. We we often arrive at our opinions, you know, our, our thoughts and, and our convictions sort of are there. And we go, oh man, this is how I feel. This is what I believe. And we might, you know, go and invite like a mix of other things to sharpen us and add some friction. But but it's 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 like the example I use is with, with my husband. Um, I'm a diehard Trekkie and he's a diehard Star Wars fan. And there is no, there is nothing Don't I worry, can do. I am neither. How dare you? <laughs> you have to pick a geek side. <laughs> but Monica, you know, the the reason why I asked Harry Potter, uh, the reason why I asked you that, that, that question was because one of the things that you describe uh, in your book is, you know, that we all have this thing called an assumption assistant. And, yeah. uh, you know, in our charged political environment today, when you hear words like inclusivity or equity or free speech or religion, yeah, you know, we immediately start to craft these assumptions. Um, and I may, and I wanted you to answer right. that question, what is inclusivity to you? Because that is one of those, you know, words that triggers assumptions in our Absolutely. Could you dig a little bit deeper into what that assumption assistant is and, and what you mean by that? Yeah, so assumption assistant is basically really the, the bundle of uh, judgments and projections that come up when we meet somebody or we're in a new environment or what have you, you know, somebody walks up to us and based on how they look, what they're wearing, their age, where we are, all kinds of things, we'll make assumptions before we've talked to them or know anything about them. And, you know, based on the game of probability, maybe we're right. Maybe we're right more often than not. But mm -hmm. regardless, these assumptions are always going to come. We can't stop them from coming. But what we can do is try to be aware of them. And the reason that we should be aware of them is because we can then, once we're aware of them, turn those assumptions into questions. You know, so I, I don't know, I could I could give examples, right, that would like surface stereotypes. So let's go, let's be candid, right? You know, somebody with a lot of piercings and tattoos who's kind of the younger end approaches, you know, an older woman who looks very put together with a big sort of Christian cross, right? And the person with tattoos is like, oh my gosh, this person, this woman is conservative. She's she's evangelical or something. And she probably hates me for this and that reason. And then the woman would look at the piercings and go, oh man, this person probably rioted and burned down businesses, you know, in his city and blah, blah, blah. And so, yeah. so, so we come together with that being whispered in our ear. And so the challenge becomes, hang on, 
<laughs> you know, like we would do with anything. So you can't, you can't believe that you have to be aware of it. So it's all suspended and you, you turn it into a question like, Oh, I notice the cross on her chest. I wonder what her relationship with religion is. Hmm. You know, I notice the tattoos. Cool. There could be any of a number of stories there, you know, jumping to like, Oh, this is the image I see on the news as a conservative of people destroying downtown or what have you. So it's, it's, it's there's so many layers deep um, and in polarized times, they've become so condensed and so associated, right? That peeling each layer off takes a little work. But but the more that we notice them again, that the, the more we give ourselves that chance to turn our judgments into questions, turn our assumptions into questions and let curiosity do its work. So this is a little bit of a tangent, but it's it's. It- in our in our environment that is so driven by social media and by traditional media in which we oftentimes never meet you know that put together woman with a cross um or that very um you know uh, pierce, piercing ridden man um uh, and instead our assumptions are entirely crafted by the media that we're consuming how do you think that we can be hyper aware of these assumptions in an environment where oftentimes we never actually directly interact with the people that we disagree with? Oh, yeah. Yeah. What a great question. And one thing is to recognize that we are spending a lot of time swimming in those media narratives uh, without checking them with reality. And and we know that's happened. There's there's a lot of evidence of um, a lot of sorting going on where people are moving to be closer to folks who seem more like them, which means that as in in general, our society is getting more distant from different kinds of lifestyles that could lead to different, different viewpoints. So I think, I think that's really important. Another thing that's coming to mind is, you know, Thanksgiving is coming up and more and more in American life, these types of things, holidays that bring families together across, you know, generations and whatnot and from different cities are becoming some of our only opportunities to encounter difference. And the opportunity that we do have is that, well, there's a relationship there. There's, and when you have a relationship at the, at the base of difference, you have a lot more hope of being able to build that bridge of being able to understand that other person, but you also have a lot more to lose. So you have to be careful there. Um, a lot of it too is is acknowledging, you know, social media has enormous power to connect us and it has enormous power to divide us. And it does hack into our psychology and it does flatten us into these opinions that just go into showdowns. So how do we, it's almost like changing the ratio. Can we change the ratio? How often are we having these tough discussions on platforms that flatten us and restrict our full toolbox of commu- human communication versus the rest of the time. So have more in-person conversations about these issues. Even with people you think agree with you, you might be surprised. There's plenty of nuance to go around. And and I want to take this conversation a little bit into the politics because we have these things called the midterm elections coming yeah. up in, in two weeks. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, don't worry. That that is that is that is the external expression of my internal uh, soul. Uh, yeah. But before before I go there, I want to take I want to go back to an earlier point that you made about consent in these types of conversations. You know, one of the things you write about a lot in your book is the role that values play in in conversations. How how do you think we can utilize the values, the deeper part, not just, you know, my stance on abortion, but why I believe that stance on abortion. How do we use values um, in these very divisive conversations and divisive times to get somewhere productive? Yeah, I think values are the key to common ground. And and common ground is this phrase that people roll their eyes at now because it's thrown around as if it's ever just find common ground. 
we'll get through this if we just find common it's like yeah easier said than done yo like that stuff's tough how do you find common ground across you know row wade stuff it's really really hard but i think the answer is values so the way you get to that in conversation is by asking about concerns and this is something i first experienced as a journalist that when you ask people what concerns them about something and there's various versions of this question i'll get to you are not asking a very judgmental question at all. You're actually asking a question that curiosity can do a lot with because you're gathering information. What concerns you? What else concerns you? Anything else? Anything else? You know. And as a journalist, I'm putting it all down there and I'm, I'm, I'm getting all that. And this person is getting the opportunity to you know, put on the table and set down these things that kind of animate them. So mm-hmm. behind those concerns are values. You know, maybe the value of security, maybe the value of caring for those close to us. And, and sorry to interrupt, could, yeah. could you differentiate between values and concerns? Ah, uh, yes. Uh, a concern might be, gosh, um, you know, guns and school shootings, right? Uh, a concern might be, well, I'm concerned that if we arm teachers or staff at schools, that it, it's just going to get more dangerous in there, that we're just going to end up causing more harm. Mm-hmm. Um so, you know, behind those concerns about, well, there's 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 the value of, of safety, of wanting to keep people safe, mm-hmm. but also of making sure that people have the freedom to protect themselves, the freedom to thrive, right, and self-direction. So that all shows up. Um, and someone would come in and say, well, it's the guns that are dangerous and whatnot. And so, so maybe that person is leaning a little bit away from the power, giving the power to an individual to defend and protect themselves because they really are leaning towards safety and they believe that's the way. But others might say, no, that power to protect ourselves is really, really important. So let's instead make sure that guns go to trustworthy individuals, but let's not go too far because I don't want my freedoms, you know, impinged. So mm-hmm. it's freedom, it's security, it's it's caring for others, it's all kinds of things, freedom to move. Um, yeah. And so those values are the ones that we do hold in common because nobody hates freedom. Anytime you see somebody say that as a slogan, just don't believe it. It's obviously wrong. Yeah. Nobody hates being safe. <laughs> you know, yeah. nobody doesn't believe in these core values. What's different is we stack them in a different order for different issues. Right. Right. It's almost like, you know, a value might be free speech, but a concern might be speakers being invited on campus. Um, and, exactly. And the, reason, yeah, and the reason I wanted to touch on that is because oftentimes it seems like in conversations we conflate values and concerns and we stay at that concern mm-hmm. level and then never get to the actual values. Um, yes, yes. And then we use that to say that they don't share my values. Like, exactly. no, maybe they just don't have your concern as high as you do, but uh-huh. they have another one that's even higher and a different set of values that's kind of coming up on top for them. So you'll, you'll be happy to know this, but today we were we were at uh, Ohio University in 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 Athens, Ohio, and at the end of the event, we basically went around in this group, and the question that we had everyone answer was, you know, what concerns you most, and what do you most care mm, about? And nice. fascinatingly enough, to your point, there's a lot of similarity when you just look at people's values and when mm-hmm. you look at people's concerns. And my question there would be that in this hyper-polarized environment where people say that there's a lot at stake in these conversations, how do you, you know, distangle the question of privilege in these conversations? Um, Mm. Oftentimes people will say that, well, you know, if I'm privileged, I can easily engage in these conversations because nothing's really at stake for me. But, Mm -hmm. you know, this, for example, underrepresented 
minority child has a much harder time engaging these conversations. How do you grapple mm -hmm. with that? Yeah, I was going to say how you what privilege means to you, because that's another word that can mean a lot and that can feel politically loaded. So when you say privilege, I'm asking the questions. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but when you say privilege, yeah, no, it's a uh, yeah. I think I think with respect to uh, at least my generation and when it comes to uh, how we approach our chapters, oftentimes people say privilege in the sense of um, you're at a certain uh, a point in your social location that you are. Uh, necessarily shielded from some problems. So people right. often throw around right. the term white privilege, this notion that if you're of a certain skin color, you're less likely to experience certain points of discrimination. And I'm just sort of steel manning the argument, but that's yeah. sort of what I mean by privilege is your social location in society and what that implies for what you can access and what you can experience. Yeah. So I, I am really grateful that that concept has come up and been so key to the way that we think you know, in new, fresh ways about how to have conversations, how to make sure that the discomfort is not too harmful and things like that. I think that's awesome. But but <laughs> I think we have to be really careful not to be not to draw those sorts of conclusions about privilege in a way that makes these sort of rigid rules about whose meaning is mm -hmm. most important. Um, I think that's that's what gets a little bit dangerous. Um, and this is a tough thing to untangle. So please, you know, guide me if I go somewhere kind no, of no, off. No. But but I believe, kind of like I was saying, that curiosity has this enormous power, like a perceptive question can just cut through <laughs> the yeah. walls of things. Within a conversation, we can cut through a lot. Yeah. Within a conversation, when you get to a lot of depth, you can connect at a certain level where if you still believe yourself to be limited by the conditions of your society, you are limiting yourself hmm. in that conversation. In that conversation, other things can actually kind of take a back seat as you explore who you are as people. And I've seen it happen. I, maybe you've seen it happen where, where, yeah, if we, if we come in telling ourselves that we are, we are, we are permanently disadvantaged in this exchange, or permanently advantaged in this exchange, then we may be limiting some some sense of discovery of that social condition. Um, the other thing, of course, is that I've seen a lot of certainty about privilege that I think is questionable, right? So, you know, the student of color at an elite university, um, you know, who might be talking about race and in the same room, uh, there's someone who's working for relative relatively pennies, mm -hmm. you know, in a rural part of this country who's white and who knows, right? There's race, there's class, there's gender, there's power, there's upbringing, there's nationality. We can get lost in this. Hmm. And I think that's it. It's like, let's not get lost in it. And so, yeah, I'm glad you're bringing this up because this is something I'm still working on. There's no final answers here. Yeah. All I know is that some really powerful things happen when we don't feel too limited by it. Um, but another thing I'll say is that it is true that power is real, right? And for those people who are shielded from certain problems, um, my hope is that they can, they can, they can compensate for that by being even more curious about the experiences they don't have, because the consequences are that much higher for other groups of people. But I think that's the lever to pull, right? It's like get more curious, get more curious, not feel insignificant or that you don't matter in this conversation. I don't think that's it. 
I think the notion of limiting the possibility of something that happens in a conversation, I, I think very insightful and very well put. And I think when it comes to these dialogues, you know, before we shift more to some of the challenges around this work and that second half of the conversation where we where we talk more about um, how we take this to the next step, uh, the final question I have for you in this part is, what do you think have been like the biggest critiques of of your book or of the work? What what have you found if you were to sort of be introspectively curious about about the literature that you've written? What have you found has been some of the most difficult stuff to contend with and 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 dealing with those arguments? Yeah, um, I think about this a lot. The barriers is is what I think of it. So one of them is reciprocity, the mm. challenge of reciprocity. People say I'm curious, but they're not curious with me. What yeah. am I supposed to do? Right. So I can say more about that. Uh, another one is it is is the idea you want me to talk to people who deny my existence. Yeah. Right. Um, there, there, there's that red line for people and different people put that red line in different places. But, you know, because this person is pro-life, they deny my existence as a woman. They deny my rights as a person. And so, man, you know, once you put that on that place, then, oh, my gosh, I think that's a big barrier for people. Um yeah, and there's also this 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 critique of following this kind of path with curiosity means that there's no action, right? Mm -hmm. Which is a huge misconception that if I'm just asking questions and understanding all day, whoop de do, mm -hmm. what are we solving? Oh, great, I understand my whoever you know the other side parents, but they're still voting that way that I think is terrible or. You know, how is that going to fix these political problems that I see as sort of life and death? So it's, it goes back to the high stakes. These things are so high stakes that being curious will only harm um, harm the energy and ability to act. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think all three of these are misguided. <laughs> and I, wow. and I have my responses. Well, I actually, that, that's, that's, that's a perfect transition. I mean, it shows how perceptive you are because those, those were actually going to be similar versions of that, that I was going to ask about the challenges to this. So like, let's actually yeah. unpack the reciprocity right. point. And, and this is something I was going to ask earlier when you said, you know, we enter into a conversation. Oftentimes I'll hear from my friends, like I'm talking to this person, but I'm curious. They're not as curious as me. Why is that? Um, and, and maybe there's some pride involved. Maybe they are actually curious, but just not showing up the way that you want them to be curious. How do you parse that that sort of critique of reciprocity, and especially when we feel it yeah. in our daily conversations? Right. I mean, it's beginning by by relating to how darn frustrating that can be. It's extremely frustrating. A, a lot of times when there are these disagreements, we may come, you know, ready to be curious, ready to make it about them in hopes that it'll have good results. But at the end of the day, we're the ones that want to be heard. You know, we all want to be heard. And so when we're approaching someone across this divide who we feel is not hearing us, we only have so much fuel to hear them before we see some progress uh, in the other direction. So so that's interesting. Right. Like that is totally, totally relatable. And, you know, what I what I really take issue with is this idea that that other person is not curious. They're either not capable of it. They're not interested in it. And And one thing that I will say is this, because I think this comes up a lot. The principle at the core of this dynamic is that people can hear when they're heard. And I cannot control, I have no idea what it will take for you to feel heard by me. It could be a lot. And here's what makes it even harder. Let's say, you know, that it's my conservative uncle and he's 
surrounded by liberal media and surrounded by liberal family members. And here's this liberal niece or whatever uh, coming up and asking him questions. What's he going to feel? Is he going to be all excited to ask her questions? No, he's surrounded by this stuff. He's going to be so excited that someone's actually listening to him, that for him, it's going to be a sense of, oh, my gosh, I finally have a chance. I finally have a shot. This works both ways. Right. I've seen it happen both ways. So that's part of the issue. People, unfortunately, a lot of us sort of treat each other as representatives of the side rather than individuals. So that's a problem. That's not a great reaction from the uncle, but it is a very natural and normal reaction. So in other words, it will take more time. And I think there's courage and patience. And I think the most important thing to do with a bridge is not to cross it, but to keep it, to not Mm. throw in the towel just because you're not getting reciprocity. Curiosity is contagious, but people have to feel heard and people have to understand that you're an individual and they're an individual and that there's enough goodwill. And that means you have to demonstrate it sometimes over and over again to overcome the stereotypes they're aiming at you about your side. That's very well said, especially this notion that it takes courage. But if you extend that courage to let them be heard, uh, you're going to maintain that bridge at worst. And at best, you're going to be able to cross it um, yeah. and get somewhere. The The second part that you had identified was this, this notion of existence that, mm-hmm. you know, let's say you and I are talking about the status of Indian American immigrants in the United States. And mm-hmm. Let's say that I raised this notion that actually like this conversation, the policy that you're advocating for, Monica, is just um, threatening the way that my family has shown up and I just cannot engage in this conversation. What would you say to someone that responded in that way? And how do we interrogate that notion of existence as a reason for why we can't have that conversation? Yeah, and it's so tough, isn't it? It's so tough. I mean, first, again, relating to it. Politics is really personal. I mean, in my lifetime, it has never felt more personal. These are not, for so many people, these are not just disagreements. It's not some intellectual exercise. It's, yeah, it's somebody saying that I cannot be who I am. And that's how it feels. And that's how it is. Right. Mm-hmm. And there's no convincing otherwise. And so, so once you get to that point, it just, it really does feel like any engagement is a servility. It's mm-hmm. a, a lack of self-respect. I'm not going to do that. I have dignity. Right. So here, here again, I think there's the possibility to complicate that with some reframes. Um, you and I both know John Rauch, who's an incredible author and thinker. And he tells a story about being part of the same sex, uh, the, the fight for same sex marriage. And the last thing that allies of that movement wanted to do was go and talk to folks who had the kinds of ideas that basically resulted in thinking something is very wrong with people who are gay, right? But they went and talked to them anyway, (laughs) a lot of courage there. And what they heard among the things they heard was, oh, a lot of these folks have children or loved ones who are gay. Mm -hmm. And so what they realized was that the, the question that began to change minds was, don't you want this person you love to be happily married? Wouldn't you want that joy for them? And so there, it was like leaning into that tension, which exists for so many people between who they love and what they believe until the love kind of wins, you know? And so they couldn't have learned that, that that was a persuasive technique for that particular cause without without listening extraordinarily empathetically. Mm. Um, and, and so that's the other thing. Like, if you think that you're too activist for this, let me turn that around for you. You're too activist not to do this. You have to do this. You have to enrich your understanding. The world is giving you a lot of ghosts. 
and monsters that aren't there. You need to understand what's really going on and how these are real people and how they're truly motivated so that if you have the better idea and the better persuasive case, you can make it. Now, it may not be you, and I'm not saying that you, 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 no, 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 no. Everyone has their own individual calculation of whether they can get into this. But goodness, I hope for all of our sakes that there are enough of us who are able to do this because stepping away doesn't create the change we think it will. I I feel like we're, we're like two sides of the same coin. I mean, you, you, you articulated, you know, courageous curiosity is this notion that uh, using the same sex marriage example, that it, it is actually a mechanism for change. And one of the things that we've seen talk to young people about is that, you know, these conversations aren't just, you know, this this sort of feel good exercise, but they're also the backbone of every social movement that was successful in the 20th right. century. From, right. From, Imagine if everyone was like, not me, not me, exactly. not me, not me. I'm like, well, yeah, no change is happening. No change is nothing happening. happens. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, we don't want change. Um, no, I'm kidding. Right. So, 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 so sort of like the third part of that question that you'd raised was or the third part of that critique is the high stakes nature of these conversations. So let's say that you and I are at a dinner table, we're having a conversation, feels relatively low stakes. There don't seem to be as many complications around that. But let's say that now you're getting two elected officials to have this type of conversation. Uh, how how do you recommend that we have these authentic conversations, especially when people are in positions of power, where it mm. appears that engaging in a conversation is actually potentially seeding you know, power, that it's, it's actually not, that it's a better strategy to just destroy, you know, like I don't need the conversation. Like how how do you, how do you encourage people in power and elected folks to have these conversations? Yeah. I mean, one thing is to point out that we conflate certainty with strength, which is really unfortunate because I think it's, it's actually the other way around. And the, um, the greater good center at, at Berkeley has been uh, putting together this extraordinary research on intellectual humility. And I've been kind of going through it. Like I'm back at school because, <laughs> um, Jason, and, Marsh, Jason Marsh's work. Yeah. Yes. It's awesome. And, and yeah, there's these studies that are, that are demonstrating that when leaders, um, you know, approach someone they disagree with or a contentious idea with, with that level of like putting out a welcome mat, you know, here, here's how I see it, but I might be missing something. What do you think? You know, I'm pretty sure about this, but, but what, you know, t- tell me what you've got. And so one might think that, you know, they compared that sort of more hedging, um, uncertain type of language. They, they compared that with a script where the person was just like, it is like this. Mm-hmm. It is like this. What do you have to say for yourself? And it turns out that rather than the audience or, or the study subjects thinking that the person who was a little bit softer on that delivery um, is sort of less strong of a leader. It was actually the opposite. Like, no, that that person gets more. Um, their point of view is still seen as as equally right. You know, like, oh, no, no, they're right in both scenarios. I can I can I, I see their argument the same way. It's really compelling. But in the scenario where they're a little bit more like, you know, considerate of the other person on the other side, they're actually better respected as a leader. So, so whatever assumptions we have that the opposite is true are just, are just false. That's not how it goes. So it's not about, we, we think that we are being servile, right? When we allow any opening to our point of view or that we're dropping our convictions, we're abandoning our side and the causes that we believe in. But, but, but again, I think it's just the opposite. We represent our side well when we bring it into productive conversation with other perspectives that might oppose it. 
That's how we represent it well. That's how we bring it into democracy. And if it is indeed the best perspective, that is how it wins. And there's a piece of that I want to elevate that you said that we think that there's certainty and strength or that there's strength and certainty. And I think that is exactly uh, a good way to sort of think about the fact that being a stuck partisan does not necessarily mean that you're a morally superior human. There's this interesting quote in your book that um, we noted down that I want to read to you. And I'm just curious how you relate to this. Um, You say that people are harder to move from our positions on things that matter to us for good reason. Mm -hmm. because our whole lives have led us here. And this goes to this notion, again, that these conversations oftentimes are very high stakes. How do we, and maybe we don't, but what is your recommendation on how we can try to, you know, unwrap our personal from a policy or a conversation? And is is that the right, should we be doing that? Well, that's the thing, right? Because it's funny. You want to unwrap in some way the personal from the policy so that you can engage in the conversation because you're going to be so scared. You're going to you're going to feel under threat. Right. But once you're in the conversation, the opportunity is, you know, the the thing you believe in strongly, your whole life backs it up. If you want to what really the best scenario is to be seen is for that path to be seen is for you to have the opportunity to say, let me walk you through my life, sir. Let me share with you some moments, right, where I've I've in, in confronted struggle, where it's been painful, mm. because when we share those stories with each other, and there's been research to back this up too, stories about our struggles around our own morality or what we believe are far more compelling and persuasive and resonate better than just abstractly declaring our position on something. So. So that's the opportunity. You don't want to lose the personal from the policy at all once you're in the conversation. Once you're in the conversation, you want to bring that personal experience in because that's what's going to help everybody else see themselves in you and go, oh, I never thought of it that way. Interesting, right? But that takes getting to that point. And that's where sometimes, you know, we see things so personally that we, again, feel that we are going to harm ourselves by even engaging, even associating, letting the, the monster out of the box or whatever it is. But, but, I, but again, I would reframe it that I think the greater harm is caused by too few of us letting ourselves be seen and expecting the world to change. Jarring transition, but Twitter is not a very curious place. <laughs> and <laughs> that's curious. great. <laughs> Best segue of the night. At least I was honest. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> it's just where my mind went to. I, I, you know, I, because you know, we're talking about these these conversations and the importance of having them, and yet it seems like the only time a lot of people are actually engaging are through these online platforms. What is your recommendation to have these courageous conversations when tweets are limited to two hundred eighty characters and? Mm-hmm we're all anonymous and you could offend me thousands of miles away and never have to deal Mm -hmm. with the complications and unintended consequences of having offended me. How do you think that we adapt your model for these in-person conversations to a world that is so online? Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the first thing is the hardest thing, which is just follow the principle that just because it starts there doesn't mean it ends there. Doesn't mean it continues there. It starts on Twitter, take it offline, take it somewhere where you have a lot better chance of communicating meaning successfully uh, to each other when you're not limited by the constraints of that platform and the space. Uh, That's super important. But if you insist 
uh, on staying on these platforms. It is possible, but it is a lot harder. And the way in which it's harder is all those things that get communicated silently or through tone or other things somehow have to get interpreted and articulated into words so that they fit. And that's why my friend Angel Eduardo says that social media is the boss level of discourse. Because somehow you have to slow it all down. You have to take a breath. When everyone else is reacting, you've got to take a breath and you've got to reflect and you've got to, you know, be curious about what someone says. So you have to slow down when everything that these platforms want is for you to react quickly. You know, your your pulse is quickening because somebody just attacked you. Oh, my God. Who's seeing this? Ah, Right. And all you can think of is fight or flight, fight or flight. So the strength that it takes and the courage to be like, no, 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 no. Hang on. We're going to slow this down. What are they assuming about me? Maybe there's something they're not seeing. Let me ask, is this what they mean or is this what they mean? Before I just attack them, assuming I know what they mean. Right. So, so yeah, it's you deciding to slow it down, even though everybody else is getting high off this reactivity. So it's really tough. You have to have a lot of fortitude to do it, but it is possible. Um, yeah. And, it, and in fact, it can be really cool because then you take advantage of the fact that you do have people from all over the country coming together in one conversation. And, and as you said, it is hard and it requires fortitude and it requires courage. And I want to, you know, put the hat on of a person that is relatively apathetic about our politics. Let's say it doesn't really care as much. And they're like, you know, Monica, like this stuff just seems really difficult. Like, <laughs> I'm just going to go bury my head and like watch YouTube videos and not really care about any of this. Mm -hmm. Like, why should I engage in a career just conversation? What's your advice or argument against this notion that honestly, disengagement sounds like a much easier option Mm -hmm. than a courageous conversation? Yeah. I mean, you know, first to be, to be kind of honest, there's always folks who kind of sit stuff out and that's okay. I think that a I think that a healthy society is not one where everybody does all the same things, right? We need our, we do, we need our fighters. We need our partisans who don't want to ask any questions. We just got to make sure that they're balanced out by people who are at the edges of their communities of belief with a hand out, right? Like looking to bring people in and looking to make that border porous. Right now it's not porous. Mm -hmm. You know, I think the partisan, like certain voices are too strong and they're not being balanced out. So same thing is like, we're never going to have an electorate that is all leaned in all the way. That said, I do think that one of the main issues right now is that we are so divided, we're blinded. And so whether you care deeply about politics or you don't, I think every single person is in a world of funhouse mirror, you know, skews of all kinds of things where we think we see the debates, we don't. We don't see the real debates. We're seeing some proxy awful thing that's been completely exaggerated, right? We we guess at the views on the other side, but we constantly exaggerate them. I mean, it's not it's not great. Uh, I suppose a weirdly encouraging thing is that folks who are less sort of partisan or less sort of mobilized by this stuff uh, actually tend to have fewer exaggerations about the other side. So there's that. But either way, they're still living in a world that is being colored and drawn and largely moved by folks who are deep in this in these exaggerations. So I think if we want to see the world for what it is, mm-hmm. and not what people's imaginations have constructed it to be. Uh, And if we want to see the debates for what they are, which gives us a chance in hell at solving them, (laughs) then then I think we all need to get one step more curious. It's not everyone wake up like a Zen master tomorrow and go talk to a Nazi. No, (laughs) it's get one step more curious, whatever that means to you. 
Mm-hmm. Even if you're too, you're you're not ready to have an actual conversation. Fine. Next time you read a headline that's an opinion that's on the other side of yours, but you know is popularly held, read that opinion, asking yourself, what is the deep down honest concern that's mm-hmm. tr- that's being expressed here? And you'll you'll already empathize a little bit more, and you'll be a bit more curious. So, baby steps, y'all. Baby steps. You you bring such an insightful perspective to this conversation, and I just want to remind everyone that. You know, we're going to have 25 minutes in about nine minutes to ask Monica any questions. And so please feel free to drop questions into the chat box. Our team is going through it um, because really your perspective on this is fascinating. And one of the things, Monica, that I think you do really well is 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 you say things really nicely. So one of the quotes that I took is that we're so divided that we're blinded. And one thing that I want to ask you is as the midterms are coming up, what are some things that people can do practically um, as individual agents in society mm. to tr- try and and take off some of those blinders, to to try to be a little bit open-minded as they go to the ballot box, to to perhaps challenge themselves a little bit and, and to potentially not think in these blocked mega party identities? Yeah. I mean, one thing is when you see when you see the surface level of uh, discourse, which is memes, political ads. You know, obviously this is not new. I mean, don't don't believe all of that. Don't take it at face value. But but more importantly, let your curiosity do its work. You see mm-hmm. a political ad and it's an attack ad, one candidate against the other. Notice what you don't know. Notice mm-hmm. where you want to lean in and know more. Is that real? Oh, is that true? How yeah. bad is that? Right. And I've done that where I where I see a political ad and I go, huh, I don't I don't know anything about that. And then I'll go online and I'll look for, I mean, I think local newspapers have some of the best coverage, um, mm. you know, and they'll, they'll go deep and they'll really, uh, more than most media, they'll, they'll really try to understand, okay, where this side's coming from that side, they'll talk to voters, they'll bring those perspectives together. And that will give you a lot more, um, better, better kind of informed things, right. Than just taking the meme at its word, uh, because those are doing their jobs, you know, they're trying to get the message out and mobilize people, but they're not really about understanding. Uh, uh-huh. So that that's more on each of us to do that. The other thing is, and this might be surprising, but when I say that we're so divided, we're blinded, I also mean within our sides. Um, right. One of the ways that this polarization has blinded us is even if you're all blue and everyone you hang around with is blue, or you're all red and everyone you hang around with is red, you're walking around assuming yeah. more often that everyone agrees with you in all the ways. They There's don't. a lot of shades of blue. There's a lot of shades, shades of blue. blue everywhere. And when we don't see the shades of blue, it's just as bad. It's just as harmful. So take the opportunity to sit down with your friends. I mean, you've not really talked about abortion. You're, you're pretty sure you're all on the same side, generally speaking. But I don't know. There's a lot of asterisks on this 15 yeah. week, 24 week. I don't know. Like, what's right? Where does life begin anyway? What do you think? Make it a philosophical debate. Um, and when there's enough trust, you know, it might actually be an enjoyable conversation. You don't know, but but you give it a chance and you might you might come away understanding something more about your friends. Right. That kind of enriches uh, the way that you see them and that they see you. My guy, I could I could keep hogging up this this time and taking up the privileges of continuing to ask you my questions because because <laughs> it's it's so awesome to hear your perspective. I'm actually going to change plans a little bit and go to some of these questions because I think there's a lot and there's some yeah. really nice ones. And I want to make sure uh, I, I respect the audience's time on this before, though, I go go there. Is there anything else that you would like to articulate or say about your book or a certain message that you feel that hasn't been able to come out yet uh, that you want people mm-hmm. to to leave with? Hmm. I guess I'll I'll say I'll say one thing that could have come up earlier um, and that I think is, is pretty relevant, which is 
Well, actually, no, no, I won't. We'll see if it comes out in the questions. I think I'm good. I'm good. Well, now I'm curious, but <laughs> let's go to some of these questions. And so one of them, and it's, this is actually building off of the, the, the conversation that, that we just ended on about stakes and about the fact that sometimes we just feel right about certain things. So this question is uh, that I want to be curious about and respectful to the other side, but for some issues, I realize I feel right and nobody could convince me otherwise. Mm-hmm. I don't believe both sides have valid points on some issues. How do I work with that? Yeah, well, I think one thing is that the goal of engaging across difference, if if we're pretty sure that we're right on the position, that doesn't mean that the conversation is not going to be enriching and interesting and the curiosity is not going to be a benefit. I mean, all the conversations I've had with my parents, they've never changed my mind on a single political issue, but they have humanized the other side in a way that brings down the volume for me. I sometimes feel like I'm walking around with a kind of immunity. Like, you know, where, where there, there's, there's obviously, and it's, it's, I mean, it makes sense. It's so much stress, so much anxiety, sometimes existential. Right. And I've felt that. And then I, I go to my parents or I go to, I, I now know lots of folks who are more conservative than I am. And I'll bring up that issue and I'll go, ah, you know, and they'll be like, oh, but, uh. and I'll go, oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So like, we're still on opposite sides, but something they've said just makes me go, Oh, so in other words, the motive that I ascribed to the people opposed to me as malevolent is not that malevolent? Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. There's other considerations animating that side? Oh, and then I calm down. And when I calm down, more becomes possible. Like creativity becomes possible. Collaboration becomes possible. Um, yeah. And again, I see the other side as a lot better, mm-hmm. you know, more moral than I thought. Uh, when I have these conversations. So that's, I think, something we miss. It's a lot easier to vilify the other side when when we don't talk to them and to assume that we understand their motives when we don't. And there might be good motives that still lead to a conclusion that we'll never subscribe to, but still motives we understand because they come from good values. And hearing that from a person, there's just nothing like that. So So yeah, it's like, you don't think you'll change your mind? That's fine. That's fine. That's not the goal. The process, the process in and of itself is valuable. Um, uh, unsurprisingly, we have a lot of questions. And so I'm going to try to, we're, we're going to try to make this as much of a lightning sort of round as possible. Oh, okay. So I'll, um, that's hard for me. I'll, yeah, I, shut me I up know. if needed, because I, I can go on. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> there, well, I'm sorry that you were so engaging that we have like 30 questions. So, oh, oh man, that's a lot. Um, this is actually, this is to you as, as, as a proud liberal of conservative parents, mm-hmm. this question is asking that a lot of liberal young adults are unforgiving of, and in fact, somewhat righteous about punishing their conservative parents. How can we encourage another perspective and a kinder attitude? Hmm. Well, um, I think the older generations, you know, who are seeing this from their children, um, I think one of the main things to do is, is just set all that aside and sit down and ask them, ask them about what they think and don't have any judgments. Don't really say anything in response. Just tell me more, tell me more question of clarification. What do you mean by that? And then do that bit by bit over time and see what happens. So this question is about how we help you go viral. So, uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> the challenge is the challenge is spreading the methods you suggest. What are the key lessons about how we might make these practices go viral? Do we talk to politicians, celebrities, <sighs> TV shows? <laughs> how, 
how do you become yeah. the second coming of whatever prophet Oh my gosh. I mean, Manu, <laughs> I know that you and I and so many bridge builders think about this. If I knew the answer, you're right. It feels like we'd already be viral, right? Um, I I believe so much is about modeling. Mm-hmm. So the more that we can model even in small ways these practices on social media, in public forums, you know, talk about how important these things are, that filters up. I'm a big believer in sort of grassroots kind of spread. Uh mm-hmm. I'm maybe not the best person to ask about, like, yeah, but how is the how does the big like flash just spread all across the so i don't know i mean manu maybe you have a better answer to that than i do but but i i believe in modeling i really do i believe that we start to mirror things that work i believe we just do five minute tiktok dances that that just elucidate you know the, the curiosity <laughs> <laughs> yes yes but but no seriously I mean, for, yeah. for people who really believe this is important you know, talk about it, model it, model it. There's no wrong answer here. Um, p- people think it's hopeless and that's why they're not even sure to give it a like. They think it's hopeless and it's not. So but- I want to actually ask you this question, which is that you said, you know, uh, the people that believe in this stuff have to be more vocal and talk about it and get out there. It, interestingly, what we've seen on our campuses and working with young people across the country is that oftentimes the people that embody the sort of bridging temperament also happen to be the quiet ones, you know, oftentimes mm. those that are naturally interested in listening and being curious are sometimes more introverted or are sometimes not interested in getting out there and yeah. you know, making a TikTok about what Monica said, because they're just naturally curious and they they don't yeah. really want to express their opinions. How do you reconcile we deal with that challenge? Because mm. it will require a lot of us to step up. Yeah. But at the same time, our temperaments don't make it uh, naturally easy for us to step up. Yeah, no, I think we have we have like the full rainbow of different personalities of people right. finding their way in this work and for different reasons. And I, I think that's actually really, really encouraging because when you ask. So I work at Braver Angels, as, as we said, and once we had a retreat and um, like 20, 25 people in national leadership all talked about how they came to believe that this was important enough to dedicate so much time to. And they they had such vastly different personalities and stories mm. and reasons that it just made me think, Oh yeah, this is looking for a, a like a match to light the whole thing on fire because this is it's not one or two things. It's a thousand things that bring people to this. It's the quiet people, it's the loud people, it's the extroverts, it's the introverts. It's people who care about humans and about our society and about our future. And that's pretty great that it's that universal. Yeah, fortunately it's a lot of us. Um the next question I've got for you is asking a question about asking a question. So Uh, What kind of a question would you use with someone who A, only listens to the most extreme voices and conspiracy theorists, or Mm. B, is unwilling to listen or engage constructively? And I would actually just focus on part A. Like, it seems like so much of our country or so many folks in our country uh, seem to be ascribing to conspiracy theories. How do we deal with that? Yeah. So this is where I think of a really meaningful distinction, really important distinction from a friend of mine, Buster Benson. He wrote a book called Why Are We Yelling? And he talks about the three conversations across disagreement, the conversation about what is true, the conversation about what is meaningful, and the conversation about what is useful. So here's the thing. We tend to get stuck on the conversation about what is true, thinking it's the only conversation we can have. So here's someone who believes something that for all that we know is a conspiracy theory. It's so deviant that there's just nothing saving it whatsoever. And so we think that once we come up against that wall, our only choice is to try is tell them they're wrong and hope that they agree, they won't, or stop talking. Uh, and that's, that's sort of our two options. But the, there's another option, which is switch to the conversation about what is meaningful. The conversation mm-hmm. about what is meaningful is not about the conspiracy. It's about them. It's yeah. about what took them to that conspiracy. So 
ask, mm. ask questions behind it. So tell me mm. more about, you know, what, what do you remember sort of animating? And I'm just making this up, right? But like, what, when, when do you remember hearing something about the Clintons that felt off to you or, yeah. or, you know, about the COVID vaccine or whatever it is, I'm just picking stuff out. But, but that only the conversation about what is meaningful builds trust. That's, that's what I believe. That's the only one that builds trust. And without trust, we can't make headway on truth. And to your point, oftentimes those folks that are mistrusting have certain things that have happened to them that exactly. predispose them that way. So what are some of those questions that we can ask exactly? I think- I Right, think right, right. And I'll, and I'll say one other thing is that even mm-hmm. when there's no truth in people's conclusions, there's always truth in their story. Right. You will yep. find places of connection. You will find common ground. You will relate. They will feel heard. They will become more intellectually humble. We can make progress. So this question is not as related to your book, but it's an interesting question. Uh, should people have to pass a basic civic test before they are allowed to vote? Nah. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> it's National Civics Day, as you and yeah. I talked about. <laughs> no, definitely 100% not. Is what I'm, That's my gut, gut reaction. Uh, so let me explore that. Um, I think if people have to pass a civic test in order to vote, that means that the country is no longer being held accountable to make sure that everyone could pass that civic test. That's a problem. You know, um, if if a lot of voters don't understand civics, that's something that we need to partner with each other and solve. But they must have the power to vote. Every person who believes a conspiracy theory, every person who holds a harmful idea must have the power to vote in our democracy. And that means, darn it, we have to actually make persuasion work. Mm-hmm. We have to make persuasion work so that the folks who hold the deviant ideas are very, very few and far between. <laughs> and that bell curve is nice and fat. Yeah. Uh, but that takes that takes works work and it takes a lot of faith in our democracy and in this mess ultimately leading us somewhere good. Gotta fatten that bell curve. That's that's the mission statement. I yep. agree. Um <laughs> the next question I've got for you is uh, actually about defensiveness. So do you ever get strongly triggered and slip from curiosity to defensiveness? And how do you reconcile and deal with that? Hmm. <sighs> yeah. Gosh, this is a tough question for me to answer. One, one because I've spent so many years as a journalist having conversations of understanding without judgment that my judgment doesn't often like it's always kind of in the background, right? And I, it's and that's fine. I think honestly because the one thing I'm an activist about is this work. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. where I get defensive is the people who who, who come up work. and yeah. yeah and just say this is this is nothing and and so. I get defensive, but then I go, wait, the way that I get better at this work and that I add friction to it, and and if it if it's going to be good, then I make sure that it is good is to listen a hundred thousand percent to this person. So yeah. I have, you know, that email comes in, I go, hey, can we talk? And then we talk because I want to understand. So yeah, but I do want to get defensive. I absolutely want to get defensive. Uh, just the other day, someone left a review of the book saying, you know, I think it's because Monica wrote this before the, the reversal of Roe v. Wade. But, you know, now that it's reversed, like I, th- this book is terrible because it's asking us to be curious about people who would deny our humanity, things like that. And it's just, <clears throat> you know, and like, oh, but there's so much I want to say to that person. But that's not the way to begin. The way to begin is not to say anything to that person. It's to listen to that person and get in that person's shoes because there's a lot of pain there and a lot of frustration and and yeah, and when I sit in that space, I'm like, yeah, I get it. I get it. 
I want to take those people to my village in India and give, you know give them some perspective. Um, <laughs> <laughs> in Mexico, uh, it's like you think our democracy is bad. Yeah. Why don't we head on down south of the border, yo? Like, yeah. let's be a little bit yeah. grateful and try to preserve this. So this question, the note is that this is from Ross. Um, I don't know if this is my Ross or just another Ross in the world. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, but they have finished a second reading of your book, a second oh. one. Wow. Um, it's flattering. And the question that they're asking you is, um, and I don't exactly know if I understand this question, but what do you want your beliefs to do? What do I want my beliefs to do? I, I guess a better way okay. to maybe think about it, because I was thinking about this question for a little yeah. bit to ask it is maybe like, what does success look like for you? Um, not uh, as a person, but like in terms of these ideas. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of these ideas. I think that, you know, a political opinion, an opinion about politics is only useful if it's in conversation with other opinions about politics. So when I think about that, what do I want my beliefs to do? I want them to mix in with everybody else's honest beliefs and honest stories, because really what I want is for there to be high fidelity between the needs of the society and the actual ways that we try to fill those needs. So if some needs are not being heard, some concerns are being dismissed, you know, some are being given way, way more, more attention that they, than they deserve, then our values are not really showing up the way that they ought to. Um, but we, again, we are a messy group of people. So success to me is that, like the politics I prefer is one that really, really represents and brings into conversation as much of the, the different stakes and concerns that there are um, in with with so much goodwill that people are able to work together and bend a little bit for the greater whole. And that's really hard to do when so many people feel that they're winning the misunderstood Olympics. I misunderstood. No, I'm misunderstood. I'm never. That is a fascinating term. <laughs> yeah. The misunderstood Olympics. <laughs> is that in your book? No, I okay, just said well, the first time be, I've said that it. Be in volume two. <laughs> Have you ever heard of the term oppression Olympics by any chance? No. Have you I've heard of woke Olympics. I think I've heard of woke. Olympics. Well, there's a lot of Olympics apparently. The Olympics <laughs> yeah. used to lock down its trademark. Um, yeah. But uh, th this notion that like my lack of privilege is more than your lack of privilege. Like yeah. I'm actually more less privileged than you, or I have more oppression than you, or to yeah. your point, I'm more misunderstood than you. Right. Yeah. Right. And we spend so long arguing that that we don't get to the actual debates and the urgent needs that we need to solve for people. So, <laughs> yeah. We we should we should launch a, a new thing called the Curiosity Olympics, uh, which happens right next to the Misunderstood Olympics. <laughs> That's great. And, and then you'd pit the winners of the two Olympics against each other. Um, oh so my this gosh. is a question from yeah. from Cheryl about journalism. So Cheryl Grave, uh, amazing uh, oh, leader, yes. uh, leads an organization called the National Institute for Civic uh, Civil Discourse. Um, do you think journalism can play a role in helping foster a fertile soil of curiosity and courageous conversations? And, and importantly, oh, yeah. like, what do you think would incentivize journalists to yeah. uh, be more curious? Yeah, I mean, 100%. If anything, if there is an institution where curiosity should reign, it's journalism. And, mm -hmm. and it does. I mean, for all of the faults of our media landscape and all of its fractures and all of its blind spots, uh, it's also remarkable, right, what reporting is able to reveal in this country. And this is, again, where, like, go to some other countries and see how it's going over there. Like we should be grateful every mm. day that we have journalists mm. trying to dig in.
but there are a lot of blind spots right now. So what what I what I think the real opportunity is for journalists to lead us in curiosity, to model better than anyone else intellectual humility, to go out of their way to make sure that opinions are being put into constructive conversation with each other in their stories, in their spaces. They have an enormous opportunity to do that. Um, you know, and I know wonderful journalists who are working on this exact problem right now. I mean, I'll shout out Jennifer Brandel of Harkin, Joy Mayer of the Trusting News Project, uh, and there's many, many more. So more attention is being turned to this. What would help them the most is the thing that feels most impossible, which is an economic model that supports it. Right now, there's just nothing cheaper. There's no cheaper way to get with what media needs than social media, make it emotional, make it make it outragey, make it something that people identify with and that strengthens their identification so that they share it, so that we, that media outlet, can survive in this mm -hmm. cutthroat environment where otherwise we can't pay our reporters and everybody loses a job. So it's like that that piece is gah, mm -hmm. tragic. Uh, but it's still true, actually, that the reporting that is most informed by curiosity and is most resonant and connected to its community is the most successful. It is the most successful. Maybe not on the national scale, but on the national scale, there's not a lot of impact anyway. It's it's the local journalism that that has the edge here. So this might be a little bit of a of a stupid question, but uh do you think that we as humans are are naturally curious or is it something that we have to work towards? Uh, because it seems like your point about media and journalism and social media, it seems like we love outrage. Like there's a reason why their algorithms cater to that. It almost seems yeah. like our natural uh, uh, being or state is like, we like to be engaged. We like to have our fears turned against each other. Yeah. Do you think that we're, we're naturally curious or do you think that that's a skill that we have to acquire? I think it's a skill, but I think we all already have it. Okay. Uh, the, the, the way to level up the skill is to level up the awareness and the intentional use of curiosity, aiming curiosity at the things you don't understand, noticing your assumptions and your judgments, giving yourself that invitation to be like, let me turn that into a question mark. What's going on there? Maybe there's another way I can approach this. I think that's really important. Um, but I will say this. I think that when one of the, one of the things I hear a lot is, man, Monica, you talk in part one of your book, the SOS about sorting, othering, siloing, you know, we're so divided and these things are all part of human nature. So if it's human nature to divide, if it's human nature to be outraged, if it's human nature to chase dopamine lollipops on the internet, you know, all night long, well, it's also human nature to connect. Hmm. It actually is. Um, and I demonstrate this, I do a curiosity workshop. And one of my favorite moments is I tell people in a certain exercise, okay, you're going to ask each other questions, but you're not allowed to do any commentary. Don't respond to their questions at all. Just keep asking. And so at the end, inevitably, someone will raise their hand and say, that was really hard. I mean, they mentioned this and I also like that. And I wanted to say, and I also went to that school or I traveled to that country. And I'm like, yeah, this is one of the things that gives me hope. So it's not so much that we're naturally curious or not. We naturally want to be seen by each other and to see each other. We want to mean something to, to mm. ourselves and to other people. That's the thing to lean on, right? Mm. That that underlying connection is something we crave. Um, yeah, that's a great point. I think the 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 notion of that underlying connection and and that actually we we get a lot of dopamine from being kind too. You know, it's yes. not it's not like we, yes. we just get you know dopamine from being angry. And Monica, we're holding the audience steady right now, and so I'm just mm -hmm. going to keep asking asking okay. questions until we mm -hmm. until until Liz starts giving me overtime. So mm -hmm. 
Um, <laughs> the next question I've got for you is back to civics tests. It seems like people love civics tests. Uh, All right. Should people running for political office uh, have pass to pass a civics a test? That's that's an interesting one. I mean, this is good because we get to explore nuance, right? One, what yeah. a, a great tactic to kind of explore disagreements is like see where somebody's point of view would change. You know, what conditions would have to be met for someone to actually give a different answer? So that's what I'm I'm experiencing right now in my own head. It's like I don't think for the citizenry that that would be a good idea, but for people running for office, hmm, I'm certainly warmer to the idea. Uh, I I can't give you a final answer, but I'm warmer to the idea and I would I would I would welcome the exchange. But then there would be tough questions about who wrote the civics test. How do we know that it fully represents everybody? What if it becomes too partisan? What if it has an enormous blind spot that actually keeps us from being represented well? There's dangers. So there's something about leaving everything all open and messy that at least makes sure that nobody can conquer it or control it. And your answer there and the fact that there was a follow-up to that question just demonstrates the value of nuance. Um, Monica, I got I to ask you a couple more questions. Mm-hmm. So the, the next question I've got for you is about conservatives in this work. Um, often, and this is, I think, more of a tactical question from some mm-hmm. bridging organizations. A lot of organizations in this work often say that it's hard to get conservatives to oftentimes engage in bridge building work. Mm-hmm. Could you speak a little bit to that? And could you speak to why you think there might be more mis- mistrust with, within a certain ideological camp about yeah. these types of conversations. I've been thinking about this a lot. And I think my answer changes based on when you ask me. And I like to think that's because, you know, ideas are mixing in my mind. And so let's see what we get. But today, <laughs> today, I I, I want to talk about trust. You know, we talked about the media and how great journalism is. There's a lot of conservatives that would hear me say that journalism is the truth building institution and roll their eyes all the way to the back of the head, you know, because all the ways that they don't think journalism has represented their concerns at all. Um, and they're not wrong. They're they're really not. Uh, so I think the trust gap is so much bigger uh, with many conservatives. And there's a lot of overlap with, you know, um, conservatives and rural communities or class divides where, where there are severe blind spots that are almost embarrassing, right? Like issues like the opioid epidemic or income inequality and how it's destroyed the economies of small towns across this country don't get anywhere near the attention of the issues that a lot of urban liberals think are more important, right? And so we have enormous blind spots on this. So if I were conservative, I would need, I would need a whole lot of evidence from the media or from bridge building organizations, which let's be honest, most of them come from universities. Most mm-hmm. of them come from cities, you know, not all of them, but a lot of them. And so the trust game is stacked against a lot of these spaces. And so I think people kind of, you know, we go, what do we do? What do we do? And it's like, well, I think we have to recognize that there's an asymmetric trust challenge going on and that it is valid. Mm. Um and so, I mean, at Braver Angels, right, we we were proud of the fact that we're able to gather folks from, from both sides, but it's not equal. Uh, but we have like the Working People's Project, um, which is all about engaging the working class. And we do forums with folks who normally never get asked to be on the mic on a Zoom event, right? And And there's all kinds of different ways. It's just you have to make sure that your movement is being co-created with yeah. all the people and I don't think that we're putting enough of an onus on ourselves on that. And that's a real problem. Let me play devil's advocate for a second. Um, why include a certain segment of the population that seems so against democracy? Because they're still part of it. Yeah. 
it's that simple. Like unless that whole segment of the population up and moved, which they're, they're not going to, and they shouldn't. Um, it, it's, it's kind of like back to that question about the civics test for the citizenry. It's like, if, if people are crossing their arms and, and feeling disengaged and detached and we are missing, and the fact that we are missing their concerns and perspectives and we, right, what a, what a privileged we I'm giving there, but that the, 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 you know, that a lot of the mechanisms of this country that talk to itself, like, and that these divisions exist because people aren't being heard across these divides, that that's on us, that's on all of us. Mm. So, so yeah, the, this democracy is going to include everyone, whether we like it or not. And so we have a better democracy when we accept that, we embrace that, and we implicate ourselves in all of the ways, subtle and not so subtle, that we are excluding voices. So I want to I want to bring up another demographic here, which is young people, and and the the point that you're raising about trust. It seems like uh, a lot of people in my generation, Gen Z, also have a lot of mistrust. We'll often describe it as you know a lot of us the the lived political memory of us is 9/11, the Great Recession, <sighs> the 2016 yeah. election, and the year that is 2020 with you know the Capitol riots and the pandemic and the the summer of the Black Lives Matter protest. Um, how would you say we? can work to reconcile that trust gap with young people and, yeah. and specifically trust in those conversations. Yeah. I mean, the the first thing I think of, I, I think a lot of trust gaps are reconciled by, by acknowledgement of missteps, acknowledgement of, of, of pain. And too often we skip that, which makes people feel like they don't matter. And that the fact that they see things differently doesn't matter and that they're still being called in to participate on somebody else's terms. So when I think of Gen Z and you just you just laid out this sort of terrible, I mean, I grew up, I'm, I'm, I'm Gen Y and I grew up like the nineties were a decade of relative peace, right? Uh, so that was fun. <laughs> so I didn't, yeah, like 9-11 was freshman year of college. Did you enjoy, how was it like to be at the pinnacle of power? Oh my gosh. I mean, or at least of thinking that things were kind of okay you know, and then Columbine happened and then 9-11 happened yeah. and then it all kind of followed from there. But but I like to think of it a different way. Is that like there's yeah. all this pain, but but so far, a lot of this pain has opened our eyes. And when when a democracy right. opens its eyes wider, the opportunity is to be a stronger democracy. So that's what I would invite Gen, Gen Z to do. Right. It's, it's all about what people have seen. Um, my favorite philosopher, Ralph Waldo Emerson, you know, the eye was placed where one ray should fall so that it might testify to that particular ray. Mm -hmm. So we need to ask, what is everybody seeing that we're missing? How can we layer the one thing on top of the other? So Gen Z has an extraordinary perspective. And if it's not being included in the power plays here about our discourse, then that's on us. Uh, we've got about six minutes left, and I'm going to try to keep this as tight to program as possible because I know your time is valuable, and I know the audience has got to be places as well. So I'm going to ask you two or three other questions. So on this notion of of trust and and what you just said there which is acknowledgement it seems like acknowledgement is a persistent theme throughout your book and through what you're saying that if you can acknowledge the missteps or acknowledge the pain or acknowledge yeah. the problem you can get places um this question person has asked a question actually about their interracial or interpolitical marriage so mm. um I am a lifelong dyed-in-the-wool liberal democrat from colorado in a long-time mm. marriage to my polar opposite a florida man until now I've been able to find a tolerable middle mm. ground. Any thoughts? Oof. Um, well, 
good colleagues of mine at Braver Angels, Barbara and Rick, are in a very similar position. Um, he voted for Trump. You know, she voted for the Democratic candidates. And in around the 2020 election, it got so bad that they actually didn't talk to each other. They couldn't talk to each other, but they still they still figured it out. So for a couple of days, they just wrote letters back and forth, actual mm -hmm. letters under the same roof. They sat down and wrote letters and Barbara felt that that was a great way. She was so upset. She was so upset that he was planning to vote for Trump, you know, that she had to get her thoughts down without yelling. And then he thoughtfully responded in those letters with love. And and that really brought them somewhere. Another thing that Rick had to learn was he was treating Barbara like a stereotype, like a stereotype mm -hmm. liberal. She was getting very curious about him and he wasn't getting curious about her. And when she confronted him about it, you know, he said, well, honey, I already know what you think. I watch TV. Like, I know, I know everything. But she's like, but that's like, even if I do have the same reasons that you're seeing on TV, you're not seeing me if you're not hearing those reasons from me. And so he, he learned that and changed that, right. And worked on that. So they're able to have those conversations. It's taken them some work. Um, they've done some skills training. Uh, and now they're kind of sharing their story and, and and passing along some of that advice. So lean on the love. I think that's all any of us can do is lean on that love. And you don't have to solve it all in one conversation. You don't have to solve anything, really. Um, you just you just have to somehow accept. There's always got to be some level of acceptance, not agreement, but acceptance that that person is going to have a different opinion than you. And uh, but can they at least understand? Yeah. yeah lean, lean on that love. And and Barbara and Rick's story is a, is a very inspiring and fascinating one. And so I think it's definitely something uh, for the person who asked that question. Um, and I just, again, want to remind everybody, there's a link in the chat. Yes. Eliza, feel free to drop that in again. Um, please fill that link out. It's an anonymous survey. It'll be really helpful for, for all of us. Um, Monica, I've got two last questions for you. Uh, uh, one is um, about whether there's ever a line, uh, are there certain lines that we should draw in these conversations? And, and specifically this person's asking mm -hmm. that they presume that it is ex uh, acceptable to have boundaries and refuse to engage further with certain people mm -hmm. or groups that have a unanimous and dangerous belief. Uh, mm -hmm. How do you reconcile that? And, and do you think there are lines to some conversations? This is probably the question that I'm the most curious about because there's so much going on. I, I, I hear I hear this a lot, and I think it's a really, really good and, and fascinating question. So, I mean, the best I can do, the best I can do is say that this is a personal decision for everyone. Um, and so the red line, what everyone's red line is, is up to them, right? So, so I've been I've been asked, you know, well, should you expect someone who's black to talk to someone who's a white supremacist? And and the temptation is to say, no, let's not expect that. But I would also say, but let's not not expect that because we have case studies from folks like Daryl Davis. It's a very famous story where he defrocked members of the Ku Klux Klan. He's a black man by asking them that radical question, how asking himself the radical question, how can you hate me if you don't even know me? So should we all up and do that? I mean, should we feel that pressure? No, this is an individual decision. But again, I would say all I can tell is that saying that is not satisfying. Somehow it's not sufficient. I think people want, and again, I'm just thinking out loud here. I think people want some kind of socially enforced guardrail. And mm. I at least am not ready to give one because I believe that eh, that so much is possible that, that I think the individual is the only one who has the power to make that choice. The individual should not feel that they should, but they also shouldn't feel that they shouldn't 
from a social perspective. You decide. That's all I got for you on anything. You've got a lot for us, Monica. Um, I, instead of asking my last question, being selfish and continuing to feed my curiosity, I want to turn the floor over to you and uh, uh, ask you if there's anything else that you would like to leave the audience with. You had mentioned that there was something, but you don't know if it has come up yet and it might come up. Oh, but, right. Um, <laughs> That's right. I, I want to turn the floor over to you uh, before we close out. Yeah. Okay. I'll mention that thing, actually. It did not come up. Uh, it's about emotional labor. It's about how exhausting and laborious uh, this work is, which depending on who you are and what the relationship is and how much, you know, that political disagreement is actually about you, (laughs) you know, then these conversations could be impossible or they could be possible or they could be very easy. Who knows? You're anywhere on that spectrum. But but here's the thing about emotional labor. Uh, When people say there's too much emotional labor in having this conversation. Here's the here's how I might here's what I might offer is that I think that we often assume that right now, when we are not having a conversation like this, our emotional labor is zero. And then when we have the conversation, it'll, it's 10, it's 20, it's 50, it's 100. But I don't think it's true that your emotional labor is zero. Mm. You know, I think we're looking around and we're seeing how stressed out we are. We're seeing the volume be up really high. A lot of people are walking around this world like it's on fire. Is it on fire? I don't know. Or is it just warm? <laughs> and we know from the research that, again, people look across the divide and vastly exaggerate. We all do. So is there room for some possibility that maybe the anxiety that we feel every day, fearing the people who disagree with us, is a lot of emotional labor every day? And that actually having these conversations will start to shave off that labor so that the first conversation's a little tough, but you know, you didn't go talk to a Nazi, you talk to somebody who just disagrees with you a little bit. You make these short bridges, right? And maybe it's the opposite. Maybe through these conversations, you actually are reducing your daily emotional labor. That's not gonna be true for everybody, but I think that's a complicating thing that we ought to consider. Well, Monica, thank you so, so much for all you do. It's it's both an inspiration uh, and a humbling experience to, to be doing this work alongside you. Thank you for the value that you're bringing to the world, especially at this highly divided moment. I think that we live in a democracy that is defined and built by people. And if we, the people, don't act and engage in these conversations, then we don't have anything. We don't have a democracy. We can't talk to each other. It is that simple. And with yep. that, I want to thank Florida Humanities. I want to thank everybody on behalf of Florida Humanities, Village Square, Bridge USA, all the amazing streaming partners, Braver Angels, the organization that Monica Guzman works for. I want to thank everyone that's working in the back to make this happen. Liz, Leon, uh, Blake, Vanessa, Eliza, thank you for all your work. Um, And thank you to the audience. Monica, thank you. Thank you, Manu. This This was awesome. This was great. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate you. Hey there, it's Vanessa back with you just sitting over here thinking about so many of the great things that we heard today. I find all this really inspiring. And you know, I definitely identify with Monica's complicated relationship with her parents. My husband and I are on opposite sides of the aisle, and we're not quiet about it. There are definitely ups and downs in our conversations. And there are some topics we avoid, but we do talk about most political issues, and that's been 
really incredible for us both in understanding and respecting other viewpoints. I used to think this dynamic was an extra challenge of our marriage, but now I've come full circle to where I actually appreciate it as one of my really, truly favorite things, and I believe that we are both better off for it. And our kids will be too. And hopefully we can affect change in our community as we draw on what we learned inside our marriage. Now guess what my husband pulls for on just about every election night? Balance. He thinks it's really bad for America when one party controls the presidency and the House and the Senate. So no matter how he voted, as the results start to roll in, he'll start rooting for balance. And I love this so much. He's very wise, and he's even shifted my perspective on this. One other part of the program that I loved was their discussion about privilege, specifically about the trouble we can get into if we rely on rigid rules about privilege. This is something I've been thinking about for years, but have not had the right words to express it like they did today. Partly because it's such a sensitive topic and an area where I feel like people can get beat up if they're not on board with the most common narrative. So I appreciate Monica and Menu's bravery in sharing their thoughts on this. And also Monica's acknowledgement that this is something that she's still sorting out for herself. It's so important to be willing to talk and share ideas, even when, and maybe especially when, we don't have everything sorted out. Before I let you go, I have an exciting announcement to share. Now that things have gotten a little extra busy here in Tallahassee, Florida on this bridge building work, we are partnering with Corey Nathan, host of Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. In addition to producing his own podcast, Corey is now producing ours and he's going to guest host here every now and then on the Village Squarecast. So you'll probably be hearing from him next episode, but don't worry, I'll be back with you guys soon. Enjoy Corey. In the meantime, he is just terrific. We love him so much. All right. With that said, it's time to close out today. Please consider joining our members and supporting this programming. You can become a member for just $7 a month or $76 a year, and your business can join for $250. Go to villagesquare.us slash donate to join today. While you're there, sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date with everything happening at the Village Square. Go to villagesquare.us and scroll to the bottom for the sign up box. Funding for this program was provided through a grant from Florida Humanities with funds from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Check out Florida Humanities online at floridahumanities.org. We appreciate you listening to I Never Thought of It That Way with Monica Guzman. Until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't look or think like you. It changes everything. We'll talk to you soon. And thanks so much for listening to Village Squarecast. Cast.